Hi everyone and welcome to the Perma Podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome to the show. And um, I'm really delighted to welcome a new guest to the show today. Someone I've been uh, wanting to have on the show for a while, which is generally true with most guests, but especially true in this case. Um, Dr. Hilary McBride, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be with you. Yeah, it's really great to have you here. Um, uh, most people will know you from, from the Suggest podcast and from other events that you've done. I think you do a lot of writing and speaking. Um, and I know you're, you're obviously, that's not your, you're also a, um, well, tell us what you do. <laughs> yes, I'm in the field of, yeah, I mean, I, have, I do all of these public facing things like podcasting and speaking and writing, but actually the primary primary work that I do is as a, as a clinician, I work in psychology, um, particularly the practice of psychology. And so I'm doing treatment and assessment, um, sometimes report writing, research. I do a lot of research. I teach at the university here at the University of First Columbia. So primarily my work is as a clinician and academic. And yet I have this um, I have this passion for taking these things that really deeply impact the quality of our lives, our ability to understand ourselves and understand each other and heal individually and collectively, and taking them out of clinical spaces and academia into public spaces. And so that's really my where my public-facing work comes from, is this idea that there, there shouldn't be as much of a divide and separation between these worlds as there has been, and that we can really deeply impact our quality of community and health and global well-being when when we break down the barriers between what is known in the counseling or the consulting room and the classroom and what we just kind of know generally about being human and um, caring for ourselves and each other. So my work mm-hmm. is, yeah, informational, therapeutic, um, clinical, but also I think in a way political and and public too. Yeah, and it's really, really important. There's a lot more people who are doing this now. I've had a lot of people on the show who are um, authors and Ooh. are therapists as well uh, and mental health professionals. And right. It's, it's, it's really good that this is becoming more accessible to more people. Yeah, I think uh, so too. Um, and I, you know, I, I do a lot of mental health advocacy and, uh, and I um, have a lot, I talk about mental health a lot on this, on this show. And so uh, it's, yeah, and it's it, it's just, it's really great how people are becoming more aware of these things mm. and it's becoming more accessible mm. to people. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I mean, how did you? How did your? Where, where did your journey begin into getting into this kind of work? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think in a way, I come by it so honestly. One because I. I've been in therapy for a very long time. I have encountered my own, both the heal, the process of mental illness and diagnosis and pathologization of my suffering, and then the recovery of that as a patient, as someone who is doing hard work to say, I, this, this way that I'm feeling, this way that I'm behaving isn't, isn't working for me and it's not okay. And it needs, I need some healing. And then also as a child of two therapists. So I have parents, both my parents are therapists and actually my brother is also trained as a therapist. And so in our our family of four, we all have um, extensive professional graduate training in the field of psychotherapy. So this tends to be the water that we swim in as a family and the the discourse that goes on and and the way that we relate to each other and think about the world. So I think the confluence of those things, although I didn't ever set out to be a psychologist or therapist, my 
my intention really was to follow my own path. Um, I think that there is something so captivating about being with people who are in the process of healing and getting getting to accompany somebody as they both plumb the depths of their pain and experience the transformation and victory of healing to accompany people as they do that work is mm-hmm. the most exhilarating thing that I, I feel like I've ever gotten to be a part of and understanding how to do that well and what it means to be human are questions that I think permeate every single one of us, whether we name them or study them professionally, that this is to be human, to ask these questions about pain and meaning and suffering and growth. So there is something I think very universal that's happening in me and through me that's in all of us, but also I have these unique circumstances of being the patient and the child of therapists that um, I think really sculpted my professional endeavors. Yeah, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. I can only imagine a family, a family meal with a, with, where everyone is a therapist. <laughs> yeah. Well, we <laughs> you know all the tricks and all the, my, all the cells and all the, you know, all that kind of thing. <laughs> Although, as I'm sure you know, like in in any field, you can go in a million different directions. And so each of us have this training, and yet not all of us have the same theoretical framework. Not all of us have the same training and the specific orientation or um, interventions that we use. And so we see things both very similarly and differently within the specificity of our training. But I will say that my, my husband, who is so so patient and so gracious often puts up with so much more psychoanalytic style talk and dream analysis at the dinner table than he's probably used to as someone who works actually in film and television as an artist. He's, this is, he's gotten quite, quite good at tolerating all of these kinds of conversations that feel very typical for us. So I have to give him a shout out too. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. As a, as a creative person married to a, a therapist, Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that would be really interesting for me as someone who's a writer and a storyteller and right like, loves to tell stories and i'd like to to, to have a partner who's a therapist would be to dig into that resource for, for right. inspiration. exactly and i think that they're mutually beneficial because there is something that is so inherently creative about the work that I do, but it's not as expressive in in a visually striking way or in a way that's as obvious as other kinds of creativity. And he's he is often putting image and color and shape as an illustrator and painter to things that I am using language to describe or research to get at. And there is something, his work is particularly existentially dominated. So he often paints and and draws and illustrates around themes of death and life and capitalism. And um, his work is addressing the same things that are often coming up in my therapeutic work. We're just hitting it from different angles. So it feels really nice to feel the synchronicity, but also like the richness that comes from our two worlds getting to align. But we have most of our conversation at some point during the day or the week or the evening is talking about death and meaning and suffering. So we, we, he and I have a, have a way of, of navigating that, even though we're in different spheres, which I, 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 I love that. I love that. That would be a dream for me as well, actually. It's <laughs> I love thinking special. about those important things. It's just, yeah. um, I mean, I'm an Enneagram 4 as well, so I kind of think on okay. a deep level. Right. So, yeah. yeah. 
And I think for, I don't know about for you, but certainly for myself, I struggle immensely in social situations where I'm expected to make small talk or talk about things that feel uh, adjacent to the real thing that's happening in the world or the real thing that's happening in the room. And so being able to talk directly about death and suffering and meaning and joy and emotions and the body and politics of politics of psychology, those things feel so easy and stimulating and rich for me. But I really struggle to talk about, (laughs) you know, like, you know, things that otherwise feel like um, maybe distractions to the pain that we have. And I know that that there is beauty in being able to have levity and humor and creativity. And it's not that I'm opposed to those things, but I love being in a partnership where we can just name, we can just name the hard things and it doesn't feel scary or overwhelming. And there isn't a sense of pretending that they are not happening or not real. Mm. That's yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really interesting. Yeah, Yeah. I think so. Um, yeah, because it's, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely feel more alive when I'm having conversations about these kind of things. Like when I'm recording podcasts and I'm mm. having these kind of conversations, that I always feel a bit more alive, more awake, more energetic when oh, I'm during the conversation and afterwards than I was before. So it, it's, ah. um, yeah. Yeah. Um, that might tell you where some of the medicine is, right? It might tell you where vitality comes from. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's it. It's one of my, um, yeah, creating things is, is one of my uh, medicines, I think. Oh, yeah. Well said. Um, yeah. Um, and definitely, I mean, I, I stumbled on podcasting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't intend to become a podcaster at all i just kind of thought i'd try it out out of curiosity really and it just kind of really <laughs> blew up and I was like, oh i'm actually good at this and people are complimenting wow. me on, on my conversational skills you know and like um like a mutual friend of ours um mike um did that on twitter once like i was like whoa mm-hmm. you know and i was like so i'm actually good at this then you know <laughs> oh how you meaningful know. to be given that feedback that what you love you are good at or that other people can celebrate I mean, that's, that's not true of all of us of the things that we love, but to be celebrated in what, what feels energizing and life-giving for you, that that's extra special. I'm so glad you've had that feedback. Yeah. And it, it's really strange because it wasn't the thing that I dreamed of doing when I was young or, or, right. or kind of any right. kind of dream. It was like something I just stumbled into and that's even makes it even better. I think. Right. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. The, the accidental encounter with some meaning is um maybe one of the great joys of life that as we go about we find joy and vitality and connection in unexpected places and i think that gives me hope that there is there is always something potentially around the corner that could surprise us into more aliveness Mm. yes absolutely i agree yeah just stay curious i think is Mm -hmm. you said it um i always tell that i say that to people stay curious follow your curiosity you know like elizabeth Mm -hmm. says. Um, yeah yeah (laughs) Mm -hmm. um i love it when these conversations on these podcasts just go in different places than i even (laughs) so good um these are the best these are the best episodes really because that's why i kind of when i uh when i when i record podcasts i don't i do plan and i do prepare but I don't have a, like a rigid structure that I stick to. I try to keep it 
fluid. So because then you get conversations like this, and it's it's great. Um, well, it reminds me of like this is a very processed comment about how how what we're doing right now is reflecting the actual very thing that we're talking about. As in, when we have these kind of closed off ways of seeing things, then we limit the potential of where the conversation could go, where life could go, where our imagination could go. And so I think it's so interesting that the symmetry of how we're having this conversation as it's gone into maybe unexpected territory mirrors exactly what we're both saying about being curious and the delight of being surprised by where where you go and what you can learn about yourself or each other when that happens. But yeah. it takes, I don't know about for you, but I find it is so much easier to do that when I feel myself capable of going any of those places. Like there are very few places in my life. I mean, maybe maybe in my job, there are certain kinds of things I don't share with my clients or when I'm teaching, there are certain ways of being that I don't give access to my students. Um, but I think about how in my own journey of being an adult and my own healing work, I have found that going all of the places inside of me means that when something, a, a potential door opens in a conversation, that there are very few places that I won't go. And I feel very comfortable in saying, oh, I don't, I don't feel like talking about that or that doesn't feel good for me right now. So I know that if something did come up, I wouldn't have to go there. But the ability to know that there are no places I won't go makes me feel like it becomes easier to be curious or it becomes easier to follow the flow of the conversation because I'm not trying to steer subconsciously steer us away from something. And I don't know if you find that either. Yeah, I, I'm happy to, yeah, I'm happy to go to those places too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I'm always open to where conversations can go mm-hmm. um, because it, it, because it's, um, you know, if, they, if, because again, it's, it's like they say, they're saying, they stay curious, you right. know, it's just kind of, oh, right, this conversation is going on, but I didn't realize it could go. Right, <laughs> um, exactly. This is really interesting, and I want to follow this. Like, but yeah. also having boundaries so that you can say no, like, if it's going to a place you don't want to go, because, exactly. um, because you've got to protect yourself and take care of your health mm-hmm. and emotional health. Boundaries are important. Um, but are. yeah. Um, and I guess for a therapist as well, boundaries are even more important because, um, I mean, especially right now, because in the last year or so, like I've got my respect for therapists has gone through the roof. Um, they must be carrying so people like you must be carrying so much as well as all the grief that all of us are carrying because of what's happened in the last months. Uh, And then like the stuff that you're carrying and the stuff that your clients are carrying, um and your loved ones are carrying and and like and having to set boundaries to protect yourself um mm-hmm. it's a real challenge must be a real challenge for for a therapist it's definitely been a learning curve to practice in a pandemic because what would typically be things that just show up in my clients lives or my patients lives um and don't necessarily impact me in the same way all of a sudden we were all going through the same thing. And so as clients were sharing fears of theirs with me, instead of that fear being something that was just their own, it was often mirroring fears that I had. Let's, you know, for example, the pandemic starts and I know it kind of hit North America and Vancouver, Canada differently than it did for the UK. 
but I, or different timing, I found um, when people were coming in to say, I'm scared about my parents, my aging parents, and I'm scared if they're taking it seriously or not, or whatever the, whatever the concern was, for the first time, those were not things that were just in my clients' lives. They, they were things that were also in my life. And so I really had to reconfigure how I show up in that space to balance not only what's happening for them, but how what's happening for them is activating what's happening for me. And it becomes much more complex to sit with a person who's grieving or afraid or anxious or um, sick or you know, in despair when that is also something that is happening in me at the same time. So the ability to balance the complexity of that and hold all of that is something that I think I'd done before, um, but in in a very new way, it felt like real time. And so there was lots of learning. And I would say my boundaries around how much screen time I do right now have changed because I'm on screens instead of seeing people in person all day long, I'm seeing people on screens all day long. And that means that it feels a little bit like work when I'm seeing my friends on a Zoom call or my family wants to catch up on a Zoom call. And so the the ability to balance how I need to be to show up at work, but then also the things that I need to do to be healthy, like be in connection with my community and my family and find ways to make that all work when it's all happening in the same you know, a box, electric electricity box that sits on my desktop. It's, you know, it's um, the complexity of emotions and screen time and fear, uh, the symmetry of our lived experience. All of those things have been confounding what I think had been previously this very well orchestrated boundary life where, you know, I would go into my office and see people and then I could leave at the end of the day. And I generally wouldn't leave. I had this very rigorous process of supporting myself around um, managing the intensity of the things that people share with me, particularly because of my one of my clinical specialties has to do with trauma and complex trauma and the profundity of childhood and ongoing complex trauma. And so being able to leave my office at the end of the day and come home was something that rapidly changed when I was all of a sudden working from home. So yes, Mm. there, I think there is a big, a big weight that therapists always carry. Um, And then the, the ways that this has all played out, I mean, it's affected all of us. There's nobody who's immune. Of course, there is always the opportunity for growth and richness and meaning that comes in the face of chaos and suffering. But Yes, the therapists and the healers are holding holding a lot. And we have, um, perhaps some of us have learned better ways to take care of ourselves and set boundaries. And other people have realized that's something they need to learn and learn fast. Um, but I have this, particularly because of a particular uh, a research study that I'm doing right now that is asking the question about people's experiences of growth and thriving during the pandemic. And what we know from the field of existential psychotherapy that we always have the opportunity to to grow and be stretched towards our own fulfillment in the face of things that are hard. Mm -hmm. I, I am balancing both the weight of this and the potential for us always to become connected to meaning, connected to agency, connected to emotions, um, to do deeper healing work that maybe we didn't have the time to do before. And I think that is true of of all of us, as well as people who are in the helping professions. Yeah, that's right. I absolutely agree. Uh, I've, so much of that resonates, actually. I, I'm not a therapist, but I've, I've 
I've worked from home during mm. the pandemic. I mean, I used to work in an office. Um, right. I still have to go in once a month. But, uh, but yeah, I've been working from home, pretty much getting up and then setting up my desk and then working at home is a mm-hmm. whole different experience. Um, and I haven't, it hasn't been a problem. My work doesn't rely on me interacting with other people. Uh, apart from meetings that I have to attend, which can be done via Google Hangout, um, but um, but there is a change, isn't there? There is a difference um, between being at home and going out, um, mm-hmm. physically moving your body, right? Going to a physically different space where exactly. you can be a different, almost have a different mindset. Yeah, you can leave, you can leave yeah. that stuff in that physical space and come home. So I have to be. Yeah, you have to set those boundaries, don't you? Everyone, everyone yes. has to do that this year. Um, yes. And you're right about the growth thing. I mean, I've done a lot of. I started there. Started doing proper therapy this year. I did start wow. doing. Uh, in the last twelve months, I started doing. I did EMDR and oh, yes, um, yes. and IFS therapy this yes. year. Yes. Oh, yes. I practiced both of those. those are, uh, yeah. yeah that's so much so doing work. So I was starting to talk to my to my body as a person. Mm. Um, you know um and at the same time i was doing ifs stuff so it was mm. all connected right oh, so i did course. a lot of internal growth well i mean i've been doing i've been doing a lot of internal growth for about five years i've been doing spiritual direction and counseling and all those kind of other things for a few years now you know right. um healing healing from grief and trauma and transformation and stuff for about yeah wow. five years wow. so last okay. year was kind of a a practice run for what I'd learn. Okay. <laughs> and yeah. also at the same time, it was like the next step in it as well because I was doing embodiment work and therapy for the first time. Yeah. So, uh, and I started to see the fruits of that towards the end of the year, which has been really interesting. Um, oh, wow. So, I'm, what great timing. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah, it's really strange how I, I, I don't know if I've told this story on the show yet. It's because it's quite a new story but i mm. had this strange experience on the winter the winter solstice of like the whole uh-huh. in my body shifted and i started to, i realized that the internal stuff that i had done was starting to connect with my conscious self and it was starting to become wow. more fully embodied and i'm just starting to notice like oh who have i become like oh that's who i've become oh that's why i become i do that now like it's just like oh, i dress like that now you know it's all these and it's really strange uh, it's, it's almost like dis- discomforting at first because it's like I should be more messed up than this. Like, I, mm. <laughs> you know, like, am, have I just become mm-hmm. dumb and stuff, or am I just, am I just healthy? Like, you know, it's, um, it's, uh, but it's been, yeah, it's been great um, to see oh, that. I'm thrilled to hear that yeah. for you. Wow. And it's, you know, whenever we're talking about the potential to grow in the face of suffering, we also have to acknowledge the complexities of context that allow that, or support that, or encourage that, or don't, and the resources that allow some of us to to really dig in instead of instead of panicking more instead of being in chaos that can come when everything changes and so i i want to create a space whenever i talk about growth and suffering that is wide enough to acknowledge a person isn't bad if that doesn't happen and mm. and that it doesn't mean that you've done something wrong if it just feels hard and yet remain hopeful about the possibility that we have a way of interacting with our life that is not just reactionary, that can be conscious when all of that is playing out in a sociocultural and socioeconomic system that supports some of us to do that more than others. 
So this is, I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with Bronfenbrenner's ecological systems model, but that's often how I think about the human being, that there are these nested layers of factors that intersect to support the development of a person or the inhibition of the development of a person. And whenever we talk about growth, we have to acknowledge those nested layers, the the ecosystem that we exist in that rewards even some people for growing and makes that a possibility. And for other people, other people not. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, everyone has their own unique journey uh, right. and their own, their own time scale and their own, you know, um, and their own unique set of trauma and, and grief to, 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 to process, you know, yes. to, um, yes. to deal with. And we have to allow grace for each other to, to have that, mm-hmm. that journey. And that's one of the things that was one of the, I think that's one of the first things I learned actually is that, is that, that oh, other people are just on a different stage of their journey than me. Yeah. If they disagree with me or they don't see what I see, it's just because they're not mm-hmm. at the same that I am right exactly. and I have more grace with other people you know yeah I think for me I'm so glad you said that because we can so create these hierarchies of difference in which we're using a very linear framework for understanding development which which tends to be a patriarchal and colonial way of understanding growth and development instead of looking at it from a feminist womanist um, mm. intersectional perspective which is that growth can often look circular. And that they're, like in the cycle, like we have to remember the cycle of being human, which says we we are all actually on on the same trajectory, and the there is no hierarchy or linearity to growth in terms of something being more valuable than something else, and it it makes it so much easier to hold hold the graciousness for other people's difference from us and our own suffering when we can see all of it, all of our reactions to trauma, all of our ways of responding to pain uh, as belonging somewhere on the journey. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Um, I mean, yeah, and I, I talk about this often in relation to grief, that grief is mm-hmm. – um grief is circular you know it's not right yeah you know um i mean like yeah i you i don't know if you'll know this but i i lost my mother died kind of nearly 21 years ago Mm. Uh, and so i that's where a lot of this work came from you know and i right um, the the last kind of five or six years and yeah Mm. something i learned about grief is that it's not linear it's circular It, it goes around in cycles like you and it evolves, you know, it doesn't, um, it's not like a problem to be fixed. It's it's, right. it's something to just be, learn. you learn how to live with it. You learn how to exactly. manage it in a way. You learn how to respond exactly. to it in a healthy way. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, there's this, there's actually, I think, I'm so glad you're naming this. There's so much damage in viewing grief as linear. And I think we have to understand the benefit of viewing it that way too. And I think the, the benefit is that it helps us cope with, with the pain of potentially feeling an ache or grief or loss forever. So if we think it's linear, it's, right, you learn this in IFS, this is a protective part of us. If we believe it's linear, we are protecting ourselves from the unbearable pain that the pain will go on forever. And so we tell these stories like, oh, oh, this is the, this is the, pro- 
you know, trajectory. We're going to have denial, then anger, then bargaining, then, you know, like depression, then acceptance. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, I have these steps I can work through. Therefore, I know I'm doing it right. Therefore, I'm not going to hurt so much. And it is much more painful and yet healthier in the long run for us to accept that there are no stages. Like there are lots of different things that we feel. And instead of introjecting or pulling within ourselves this external model of what should be to affirm our sense of rightness and what we're feeling, it is much more laborious, but wise, much more healthy and uh, sound for us to become fluent in the language of our own pain. Instead of imposing on us this developmental trajectory, learning to speak the language of our pain, learning to be with the oscillation between loss and growth and meaning and avoidance and finding our unique rhythm of that cycle. But it takes so much more time and wouldn't we all just love a checklist, right? This kind of comes into the kind of the system that we live in, which is, one that that wants formulas and wants like hierarchical responses and wants like the quick fixes and everything's a problem to be fixed. Yeah. Um, and it's all quick rushed. Everything mm-hmm. has to be fixed quickly. And actually that's not actually healthy. I mean, like, I, mean mm-hmm. I, I think I've said on told this story on the show that I would start with my mother died 21 years ago to start with. I, I, I went into certainty Um mm-hmm kind of a progressive fundamentalism, fundamentalist Christianity, um, you know, which was basically kind of a form of certainty, which kind of had a bit of doubt tagged on the end of it to make it seem like it wasn't. Okay. And, um, <laughs> uh, and it was only, I only realized when I came out of it that that's what it was. Uh, and mm-hmm. um, so, you know, I did all the things that I was meant to do to, to deal with my grief. And yet mm. I still was carrying a whole load of anger and I still was carrying a whole load of pain inside and I knew that it was there and I wasn't dealing with it because mm. everything on the surface was great. You know, I had a I had a mortgage, I had a job, I had a uh, I had a church, I had a home group, I had everything was like secure and stable and wow. you know uh and certain and then it wasn't. And Right, right. Um Yeah. Wow. You know, so, James, just as you're sharing that I have is it okay with you if I share my immediate reaction to what you were yeah, saying? Please, please do. Yeah. I'm so, I'm so grateful that you found a way to care for yourself in that. Like I feel I actually have this experience right now of being grateful for your grab at certainty when everything was so uncertain and the way that you found to take care of yourself. And it, I hope, I hope that there is an, there is that experience for you inside as well that you can look back and see that as the way that you, your system was trying to take care of itself in the face of unbelievable and overwhelming loss. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's one of the things that I've, I've learned in internal family systems is, yes. Is that all the, your, when, when, when your brain does those, does those things and comes up with these managers or exiles or whatever, it's not, they're not, they're not bad. No, no. They're just no. trying to take care of you. They're just trying to do the best for yeah. you and keep you safe. So part of part of that therapy is is expressing gratitude to them for doing uh-huh. the job, uh-huh. like, right? And just and it's you just gently it. explaining to them like, okay, this doesn't really work anymore. 
like we need to do something different different right, um, right. the same for the same reasons to, to take care of me <laughs> and you got and, it yeah of it being all like either or like this is bad this is good it's almost like actually it's just you trying to take care of you and yeah how gracious you yourself you know that's right that's right and then like what beauty and wisdom that you have had the courage and the support and resources to learn a new way to take care of yourself to really show up in your own life and find find your unique grief language to be yeah. gracious gracious to yourself in the midst of all of that pain that didn't get felt before that it's it sounds so be- like this is my honest reaction James it sounds so beautiful listening to you talk about every single step of that journey and i'm also really glad that you're here thank you I am writing a book about this whole journey. Oh, cool. So I'm excited oh, to share that. the share it in a bit more detail. Um, yeah. I'm just planning it right now and trying to get like nail down what, what it is. But mm. um, I think we need like, that. We need so yeah. many more stories of what grief looks like and how we cope and how we heal. And I think the the more diversity of stories of grief, the more wide the the narrative can be for those of us for the rest of people who are grieving to imagine something just outside of that linearity at that we're otherwise prescribed culturally and mm. i think it it's it sounds exciting to me to think that your story could be um of of aid to widen our understanding of what grief looks like and feels like yeah thank you <laughs> i feel like i'm not being interviewed at the moment it's really surreal <laughs> <laughs> well you did say you um, wanted a conversation instead of an interview so. no, no, i mean you're you do you host podcasts as well as me so you, you know it's um it's kind of it's, i know i know what it's like because when i'm guests when i've guested on podcasts it's like i end up starting to ask the other person questions and it's um right. it's uh yeah <laughs> but no it's actually really encouraging to hear that um and i mean i i don't know whether you've experienced this but when i i and I'd love to hear your thoughts about it, but because of my own journey, what I've seen in the last year with people experiencing this collective grief, it's this really heavy grief. It's so many things, you know, the mm. pandemic and, uh, and, you know, the Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and, um, yes. you know, the obviously the, the election and all of that, the, this, this collective grief that we've all experienced uh, that I've seen, oh, like this can actually be, this is an opportunity mm. for us to do things differently. Yes. Um, yes. This is an opportunity for us to be transformed. Like yeah. um, this phrase, like grief is the engine of of transformation. It's like the mm. it's like the animating energy of, of of transformation. If we let it, if we right. if we come out of this time and we just go back to our go back to what we try and go back to what we did before and try to hide everything mm. with with certainty and you know, addiction or coping mechanisms or whatever, and we don't deal with our grief, then nothing will change. But if we have the courage to actually name our grief and do the work, we can change not just individually, but culturally. Mm-hmm. That's why that's where I feel hope right now. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Do you feel that too? <laughs> yeah, I think the naming... I mean, there has always been cultural grief. It just hasn't been named. I mean, I'm thinking about the grief that comes out of 
Uh, no, I should say that it's not that it hasn't been named. It hasn't been named by dominant culture, um, particularly by a white supremacist culture and cologne, post settler colonial culture um, in a way that has been accessible and visible to masses of people because the people who've been carrying the intergenerational trauma, I'm thinking about the black and indigenous folks in our communities, particularly in North America, have been telling the truth about their existing pain and resilience and joy and trauma for centuries. So mm-hmm. there's something that's beautiful about this coming into the public discourse in a way, because I think it allows us to start examining like grief. Yes. As the engine of change and also a sense of connectedness to um, something about meaning or value or what's been wrong or what's been lost or the injuries that have happened. Like there is an insight that I think comes when we acknowledge our grief on a on a broad scale, and it allows us to start asking the question that I gosh, I love I love her work, Ruby Sales, um, civil rights activist and theologian and thinker has said, ask the question, where does it hurt? This is where we start. We ask, where does it hurt? And asking where it hurts allows us to consider the wounds, heal the wounds, and do something different. So I think there's something that's been afoot in the dominant culture that has allowed people to start naming grief in a way that wasn't named before. And it might be that it, this disruption has happened on such a large scale that nobody's been untouched by it. Mm-hmm. Everybody has had some kind of disruption, no matter what your power and privilege is. And that means that it can't be as easily ignored by people who would otherwise be protected from kinds of pain that they can abstract themselves out of or um, throw money at or um, ignore in the voices of other people. Mm, yeah, you're right. You're right. It is. A, I think I've never seen such a collective grief experience in my life. Right. It, um, right. You know, there's just so much, so much grief. Yeah. Um, and I love even our statistics show it because our statistics talk about the rates of uh, liquor sales in the like March, April, May through the roof. I'm speaking particularly about Canada because I know of statistics. And then rates of domestic violence going up and rates of people reaching out to get assessed for eating disorder symptomatology, like the rates of depression and anxiety going through the roof. Our, our statistics are telling the truth about the pain that we're in. And I don't necessarily think that the pandemic is the thing that's necessarily causing all the pain. I think it might be something that's revealing the pain that has been there yes. all along. Yes, yes, that's right. There's, there's this, um, there's this great meaning of the of the word apocalypse. This Greek meaning of the uh, word, which is yes. I wrote something about this last year actually, and that it's the it's the un- unveiling of of things that are true that have always been true that. We just didn't know we're true yet, or something. That, that's yes. not the exact, the exact phrase. Yes, but I know but what you're that's saying. basically what yes, it means. Great revealing. Yes. yes. And then covering. And Absolutely. that's what's happening. Yeah. I think you're right. And we have choices. I mean, I think this is what we were coming back to, or what to come back to what we were talking about earlier. There are certain contextual things that will make it easier for some people to go, yeah, you know what? Something is being revealed. Okay good. I'm going to face it. I'm going to heal it. I'm going to, I'm going to go to therapy. I'm going to research. I'm going to own this pattern. And then there are other people who, because of um, cultural things, socioeconomic things, um, deeply entrenched defenses, 
will have more resistance or inaccessibility to to naming pain, or it just feels like there's too much chaos and instability to actually do the do the healing or get to the kind of goodies of change. So what I find so fascinating is watching how factors outside of ourselves and inside of ourselves collude to allow for or to promote the transformation that you're talking about in some and not in others. Like there's this this really interesting research study that came out about grief and resilience and growth in the face of trauma. It came out in 2006 and it it said that for people who have really healthy coping or ways of being before a crisis or a trauma, they're more likely to be able to access those during and after a trauma. So we also have to think about like what the before times were like in terms of what they gave us access to and the tools that some people bring into, uh, into a chaos, into a trauma, into a collective disruption or apocalypse that allow them to choose to, to wake up, so to speak, or to respond. Mm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's definitely my experience that mm. whether I did before last year, um, because it is last year now, 2020 is last year. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> before then, that's kind of prepared me to go right. through that year. And right. I noticed it. I noticed all the same patterns of behavior that I I noticed and doing the work at the same mm-hmm. time as well. It was, yeah, it helped me. It definitely helped me. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Well, I'm yeah. grateful for that. Yeah. I'm so glad you've been able to come on. It's been fantastic. Oh, thank to you. you. What a joy to have this conversation with you and just learn a bit more about who you are as a person. Yeah. And thank you for sharing all of your mm-hmm. insights. It's, um, it's really great. Where can people find you and find your work? Yeah. So you can find this like huge catalog of conversations I've been a part of over at the liturgist podcast. Um, I have a podcast of my own that's therapy related it's called Other People's Problems. And the really cool thing about that project is it's with consent of my patients, uh, audio recordings from real therapy sessions. So for people who don't know what therapy is like or think it is like we see it on the movies or don't have access to it, it helps us learn from other people's learning and healing and disrupt these narratives of help-seeking behavior that often keep us stuck from asking for help. So that's Other People's Problems. And then I've got a book two books out, um, Embodiment and Eating Disorders, which is a textbook. So I don't normally talk about it because that's not the kind of thing people love reading uh, just on a Friday night or whatever. But I also have Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image, which is about the stories that are passed between women intergenerationally about body image. And then a book coming out this year, it'll be out at the end of the year called The Wisdom of Your Body, which is all about embodiment and how we can use embodiment for individual and collective healing fantastic that's that and you can find me on instagram hillary l uh, hillary liana mcbride there's a b- whole bunch of l's in that and then on twitter hillary l mcbride fantastic and i highly recommend all of that to you everybody um thank you so much hillary um this has been fantastic and uh thanks everyone for listening take care